the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey guys, we're back again. I know, and I'm so excited about this episode today. You sort of teased it last week and you said... You know, you had discovered this book yeah. of your dad's yes. when you were in like the fourth grade. And I mean, that could have gone a lot of different ways. So. <laughs> hey, <laughs> just saying. No, no. Yeah. My dad was a really big reader, is a, still a really big reader. I'm used to be a big reader, but kids kind of get in the way of my time that I have to myself to read. Um, and so does internet. Social media gets in the way too. So I'm not, I'm not blaming my kids for me not reading. It's my own thing too. Anyhow, um, yes, no, it'll be fun to talk about, but let's talk about what's going on in our personal lives. Oh yeah. Well, y'all, I have, um, I'm going to throw this way back to John Benny Ramsey, which were our first three episodes. Um, if you haven't listened to them, you should go back. They were really good. Anyway, um, we gave Patsy Ramsey so much grief for like showing people through her home. Do you remember that? We're like, yes. who are these people that just like give tours of their houses? Right. That's so obnoxious. <laughs> and I was really like... You were giving it to her. I was. I was very judgy about it. And, um, you know, I think we've told everybody we've been building a house recently and I had the privilege of having family in town from Kentucky, which was so amazing. I have probably not seen these family members in like eight or nine years. And um, so it was great to see them. But my mom was here. And, you know, like every good mom, she's so proud of me. She's so proud. She's the sweetest. Um, And so my family came and we were just going to do like a quick like, hey, welcome to Dallas. You know, here's where they live you know, sort of in the neighborhood or, or whatever. And I was going to give them some water and then we were going to go to lunch and it turned into like this whole home tour and it was sort of embarrassing. But then my mom was leading it, which was so cute Aww. because she was super involved in like our whole process for helping pick out. And, you know, she was a good mama holding my hand and giving and me opinions. She has her own little suite too. So she does have her own little suite. She has her own toaster oven. This is true. <laughs> I she mean, still has not cooked in the toaster I oven. I was going to ask you next, has she cooked in, the, in yes. the toaster oven that she wanted? No. Although I do feel really bad. She also has her own coffee maker because because she doesn't like our coffee maker, even though it's like the Rolls Royce of coffee makers. So she just likes like her Maxwell House light, you know, whatever. Yes. And so she has her own coffee maker. And um, a couple of weeks ago, we were staging a new listing and and somebody on my team was like, hey, does anybody have a coffee maker I could borrow for this photo shoot? And I was like, sure, I've got one. You know, come get it. And so she comes to visit. She's like, where's my coffee maker? <laughs> the so, one thing, you know, totally not bougie that she I was wanted. Like, it's like, mama, we needed it to sell a house. She's like, okay, well, you just take it if you need it to sell a house. Aww. But you still have your toaster oven. Yes. Yeah. I, I, we did not need that for the photos. <laughs> I was hoping that she had cooked you dinner in her in-law suite in her toaster oven. She has not. Maybe next time she visits. Okay. Well, tell, um, you know, Mama, if you're listening to this, please cook in your toaster oven. So anyway, I just want to go on record saying I'm going to take back some of the grief I gave (gasps) Patsy Ramsey over the home tours because we were literally in the minute, like in the middle of walking through the house. I was like, oh, I was so rude to her. So anyway, that's what's going on with me. (laughs) Mamas are always proud. 
I know. I know that's sweet. I mean, yeah. and we're proud mamas too. Yeah. So I get yeah. it. I get it. All right. Well, are there any like proud mamas in this story, Alana? Or I mean, I don't uh, know what you're going to tell us. I mean, mm, well, let's get it. We'll just dive into it. Let's do it. Okay. So we're in Kansas today. We're in Holcomb, Kansas to be exact. And that's where we're going to talk about the murders of the Clutter family. And as we said previously, I read this book for the first time in the fourth grade and I couldn't probably process all of it. So I remember probably about the sixth or seventh grade, I revisited the book because um, I remember, I think I was probably, probably part of my brain was intrigued by it, but didn't understand exactly being 10 years old, um, what was going on in the book. So I did read it again. And what's the book called? In Cold Blood. Oh. In oh, Cold the, Blood by Truman uh, Capote. Oh. Okay. Yeah. That's so, a real book. Like, it's a, a real book. book. Yeah. It's a very and serious book. you read it Probably did not have been reading grade? it in the fourth grade. <laughs> I don't know. Even <laughs> the sixth grade might have been a little early. <laughs> um, but it was, but yeah. So like I said, dad was a big reader, had tons of books all over the place. I probably had gone through my library stash and was looking for a new book and stumbled on that. So um as you do on every episode, let's talk about the house. The clutter home was a two-story, 14-room, four-bedroom home that sat on nine acres. The original farmstead was called River Valley Farms, and Herb Clutter bought the home for $40,000 in 1948 for his family of six. Before the infamous murder took place, 611 Oak Avenue was the bell of the small town of Holcomb, Kansas. It is said that the home was stylish and modern and not the traditional farmhouse you would find on the plains of Kansas. It was a blonde brick home that really stood out among the white wood-sided farmhouses. That's, you know, sorry to jump yeah, in, no, but do it. that's always fascinating to me when I travel. You know, I think we've mentioned my husband's from Iowa and like the style of architecture there. There is a lot of wood and then some people, you know, some like here in Texas, we have a lot of brick because it's just mm -hmm. easy to get. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I bet that really did stand out like a brick house amongst a ton of siding homes right. is going to look different. Right. And pictures of it, which obviously we'll have on our website. Um, it just looks like any old home to me, but I can only imagine then it totally stuck out like a sore thumb. Mm -hmm. So when it was built, it even had a write-up and pictures in the local paper because it was built with two and a half bathrooms. And it, that was at a time when homes still did not have running water. So it even got a write-up in the paper. I love it. We almost bought a house that was the original GE Appliance house here in Dallas. Aww. And so it had like the Dallas Morning News paper mm. framed in the house and it had all the like GE appliances. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. The, the house also needed all new windows, so we didn't end up buying it, but it would have <laughs> been cool. So, Well, this home was also known to have many innovations that weren't widely seen in homes of its time. Noted were the cabinets that went all the way up to the ceiling, and a bottom kitchen drawer that could be pulled out and used as a step. Which, why Genius. don't we have that anymore? I'm trying to picture that. You know, I see that in yeah. a lot of, like, powder baths for really? the kids, mm. where there's a little pull-out drawer at the very bottom. So if you have small children, instead of having, you know, an obnoxious-looking step stool, they can pull out the drawer. But I, I haven't that. ever seen that in a kitchen. Yeah, I need oh, that. I, I haven't seen it in either place. I like that. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. So it's here that we set our scene. On the early morning of November 15th, 1959, four of the six members of the Clutter family were found murdered in their home. Herb Clutter, 48, his wife, Bonnie, 45, and their two children, Nancy May, 16, and son, Kenyon, Kenyon, 15, were all found shot in the head at close range. They were found bound and gagged. In addition to the gunshot to the head, Herb was found with his throat slashed. The family was discovered by family friends Nancy Ewald and Susan Kidwell around 9 a.m. Sunday morning. 
Nancy and Susan, both 16, went to the Clutter House every Sunday to get a ride to the First United Methodist Church, where they and much of the community attended. As a result of everyone in the community attending service there, a very dramatic scene unfolded. The coroner was called out of Sunday school, as was the pastor, Reverend Leonard Cohen. Cohen was able to make it back to the church in time to begin the morning service at 1045, where he made an announcement about the murders from the pulpit just before excusing himself to call the adult children of Herb and Bonnie. That's so sad. That is so sad. And those poor 16-year-old girls, I mean, to come across a scene like that. Right. And it was horrific. So— and and they had adults, so they had grown children as well. They did. They had two okay. grown children. Okay. Right. So two were still in the house. So all the people that were living in the house mm-hmm. at the time right. were killed. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. And and I'm kind of scanning here, trying to kind of figure out about Holcomb. Um, and so it's a town of about 2,000 or so today. Um, you know, it's one of those many cities in the Midwest that was built along the train tracks. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, this was sort of a hog farming community. You know, built along the train tracks to for transportation. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's not a lot of history in there. Everything, if you if you Google Holcomb, Kansas, as I'm doing right now, um, you basically see the in the cold blood yeah. as as pretty oh, much everything right. that you find when you're Googling it. So right. sad to sure. live there today. Right, right. So the for six months, the crime went unsolved and the community was terrified, obviously. Um, there was a report that said that there was a light on in every room of every house in Holcomb for a while. Everyone was afraid to turn off their lights. So they didn't know, you know, they didn't know who did this. Um, so Alvin Dewey with the Kansas Bureau of Investigation and his task force of 18 KBI officers began working on the case. They interviewed everyone from handymen to teachers, friends, and even the family's doctor. The task force worked nonstop, only taking a break to attend the funeral. The funeral was an open casket, despite the severity and nature of the death. The family's faces were covered in thick cotton to hide the facial damage and destruction that the shotgun had left. Oh, my God, that's horrible. I know. Hard at work, the task force made a discovery upon development of the crime scene photos. A bloody boot print was found when the photos were examined in ultraviolet light. Knowing that the family was barefoot at the time of their murders, they correctly assumed that it belonged to the killer. It wasn't much to go on, but the police withheld this information from the, pa- from the public and held on to the evidence for use at another time. Friends of the family assisted in the investigation by scouring the home, looking for clues and assessing what was missing. They noted that the home was, was not ransacked. All of Bonnie's jewelry and items with monetary value were still there, but that a small transistor radio was missing. These small clues weren't enough to go on, and the case stalled for weeks. Okay, now I feel like I really need to give you guys a tour of my house so that if something <laughs> happens, you can note what's missing. Now we can take pictures and save them to the I'm like, cloud. How would you, that's really impressive. How would their friends know? Yeah, I mean, that, that is a difference. I, I mean, my husband and I would know. Maybe my sister-in-law because she spend, you know, spends a lot of nights over. But, I mean, in general, I mean, even good friends would not notice unless it was like, I don't know, my couch. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. Like, something yeah. pretty big. And I don't know if this lends to that at all, but apparently they hosted a lot of events at their home because it was such a significant home in their community. They they, they had people over all the time. Mm, maybe yeah, they I were mean, giving home tours. <laughs> maybe. Well, they had running water. Not everybody. That's oh, true. Right. That's true. Oh, yeah. so everybody wants to see. Let's yeah. flush that toilet. 
No, I mean, I I think they were relatively well off, especially by rural mm-hmm. Midwest standards at that right. time. Right. So on Christmas of that year, Alvin Dewey received a call from the director of the Topeka, Kansas Bureau of Investigation. Logan Sanford told Dewey that they had an inmate who claimed to have knowledge of the murders and the perpetrators. Floyd Wells, a prisoner at the Kansas State Prison, was willing to talk in exchange for the reward money and early release. Floyd had been a farmhand for Herb Clutter and was a cellmate of Richard Hickok. Floyd recounted that he had told Hickok about Herb Clutter in a safe of cash that he kept in the house. Upon hearing this, Hickok hatched a plan to steal the cash from the safe and began and begin a new life in Mexico. He contacted another former cellmate, Perry Smith, and enlisted his help to carry out the crime. By the time the pair were finally apprehended in Nevada by the KBI, they had crisscrossed the nation, committing small crimes, including cashing fraudulent checks and auto theft. They were arrested on December 30th and flown from Nevada to Kansas. At the time of their apprehension, they had in their possession a knife, a shotgun, and the boots that left the bloody print at the crime scene. I was really impressed with that, about them seeing the bloody footprint in 1959. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good, very specific, especially this is a small town that the detectives, I don't think, you know, it was uncommon to be getting murders. Absolutely. Apparently, they were friends, Alvin Dewey and um, Herb Clutter were friends. Maybe it was extra special to him. And I don't know. I mean, I would think they would devote him as much time to anyone, but yeah. it's like hit home for him. Uh, so under interrogation, both men eventually confessed to the crime, but Hickok always claimed that Smith was the one who committed all four murders. The trial was held at Finney County Courthouse in nearby Garden City, Kansas, and on March 29, 1960, the pair were convicted of four counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. For five years, Richard Hickok and Perry Smith were housed on death row at a federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. On April 14, 1965, both were executed by hanging in the gallows on the prison grounds. Their last meals consisted of spiced shrimp, French fries, garlic bread, ice cream, and strawberries with whipped cream. It's interesting. The strawberries with whipped cream sound really good. Yeah. What would be your last meal? Is that too morbid to ask? No, I don't think so. But I can take a lot. I read it in Cold Blood in fourth grade. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> wow. I um probably my mom's rice. Oh, <laughs> really okay. Good. I don't know. What is so special about your mom's rice? Well, you haven't had it. You have to have it. Well, it's really, really good. No, uh, I, mama, I, I, mama. I wasn't judging. I was like, <laughs> no, I'm more just saying curious. it's hard to explain. I'm, no, I'm just saying it's hard to explain. You have to try it. Is it Spanish rice? Is it? Yeah. Okay. I think so. Yeah. There's like cumin and garlic and tomato sauce. something I cannot replicate. Okay. Aaron kind of can, but not the same. Okay. Yeah. Well, can we have mama make us some yeah, sometime? Yeah. Mama. <laughs> yes. I love it. What about y'all? I think I'd be like a good medium filet with a baked potato and a really good glass of red wine. Do you think they give you red wine on death row? I'm thinking not, but I sure (laughs) would want some. Um, Something that takes a long time to eat. (laughs) (laughs) I like the way you think, Melanie. Melanie's the brains of this outfit. So now that we know who committed the crime, um, let's talk about what we know of the crime. After coming up with a plan to steal the cash from the safe, Hickok and Smith drove more than 400 miles across the state of Kansas. 
Upon arriving in Holcomb on November 14, 1959, they entered the clutter home through an unlocked door after watching the house, waiting for the family to go to sleep. You need to start telling your husband to lock the door because I remember I mean, on another episode. Yeah. You got to do the house check every night. Every sure the night. Doors are locked. You know, ever since you said that, I make a more conscious effort to do the, like, make sure the back door is locked and make mm-hmm. sure the front door is locked when I'm going to bed. And I can tell you, my husband has never done that. Like, <laughs> I, he's tired. He's asleep on the couch and then he goes straight up. I, he has no idea that I've done that. Yeah, that's our public service announcement. Lock (laughs) Lock your doors doors. before you go to bed. So after gaining access to the home and being unable to locate the safe, they woke Herb demanding to know where the cash was. Herb, though, did not have a safe and did not have a huge stash of cash in the home. In fact, it was well known in the community that Herb paid for everything with checks, not cash. So it kind of seemed like he was either duped or misled by Hickok. Well, I mean, it just sounds like it was... uh, jailhouse talk. I mean, you know, talking about, oh, yeah, I used to work for that real rich guy. Right. Like, you know, like, you know, mm-hmm. you're, well, you're trying sense. to inflate yourself. You know, you're trying to look good. You know, oh, yeah, I bet he had a lot of money mm-hmm. and, and kind of exaggerated. Right. Right. So I don't keep cash in the house anymore. But during COVID, I got a little like, oh, like paranoid about, you know, all things. And I was like, cash. We have to have cash. And John was like, what What do you think we're going to need cash for? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> but I just want a little bit of cash. I never, I always forget about cash. Like, I never have it on me. I don't have it. I just don't, I just forget. Oh, like, I everyone- never have cash. In the rare times I have need cash, this is embarrassing to say I have to go take from my kids because... <laughs> Uh, you know, because, you know, they, they might get a little bit of cash for birthday Christmas money. or birthday or right. something like that. Right. So if we are to have cash in the house other than like, you know, uh, something potentially in my wallet, like it, it's most likely going to be in my kids, you know, quote unquote piggy banks. And so I'm like, oh, yes. Yeah, so the other day I needed to, uh, oh, we were trying to tip at uh, uh, the Bell- Bellman uh, at a hotel. And, you know, neither my husband nor I had any cash. And I was like, you know, saying to my son, you know, because I knew he had some birthday money in his, you know, backpack. I was like, hey, I need to borrow a little bit of money. And he's like, you're never going to pay me back. And uh, and I said, um, if I don't pay you back, uh, add $10 on to what I'm taking now and I'll pay you back. Yeah, I didn't pay him back in time. So now we have an extra $10. high interest rate right there. Well, because... He was being, he had a point that I'm always taking from him. And so I was trying to incentivize myself to get some cash to pay him back, but it had, it didn't work. So we have the green light card, oh, which, yeah. I mean, if green light wants to sponsor this podcast, yeah. we'd be, <laughs> we, we really love your product. Um, but I love that because I can just instantly move the yeah, money. I'm like, Hey, I took your cash and here's $10 in, on your in, green light. Until you for lose your green light card. So oh. that is what we're dealing with right now because my son's going to camp this weekend um, out of state and he needs cash because they go to Target and they, they go on, like they go to the Apple beach. Pay. Yeah. That's what we use, Apple Pay. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. That's a very good idea. And, uh, but no, we have money on this green light. That's the, the oh. thing. And we could not find it. So the last day or two, we've been scouring the house. And yes, it's his fault. But at the same time, you know, he only uses it like once or twice a year. So yeah, 
But Apple Pay, that's a good idea, maybe, yeah. because he's like, he's like, but I need a credit card. I'm like, well, first off, no, you do not need a credit card. Uh-huh. And second off, um, I was like, you have cash. You've got your birthday money. He's like, not everywhere takes cash. I'm like, what's up with kids what? these days? <laughs> well, that's true, though. I guess that's true. That is true. My son and his buddy went to the movies the other day. Okay. And it never dawned on me that like 13 years old was too young to drop kids off at the movies by themselves. Yeah. What? Um, and so they went up to like the front desk person. They were like, hey, just making sure you guys take Apple Pay, right? And they were like, I mean, we do, but are you 18? What? No. You have to be 18? They got turned away from the movies. Aww. I'm sorry, what? Were yeah. they going to an R-rated movie? No, it was a PG-13 movie. It was just at an establishment that sold alcohol. So I'm wondering if maybe that. No. I have weird. totally have taken. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, but here, oh, wait, but this is the best part. So middle of the day, the friend's dad dropped them off and I start getting this FaceTime call from my son and I am literally FaceTiming a client out of the country, showing them this house that just came on the market and he keeps beeping in. And so I'm like FaceTiming and then trying to text like, hey, I'll call you in just a minute. And so I finished the tour of this house and call my son back. And he was like, Mom, they won't let us into this movie. Can you come right now? And I was like, no, no, I'm working. I was like, have you tried calling your dad? <laughs> Him? And he said, no, he's on conference calls. I can't <gasps> call dad. <laughs> oh, no. I was like, okay. That is, that is the story of my life right there. Okay, yeah. We are it's all true. three working women who are you know, full-time, you know, you know, working this is people, and yet, and and yet, our children still default to mall. Yep, absolutely. And I mean, look, I probably wouldn't have it any other way. It would make me sad if he defaulted to his dad. But like, you didn't even try him, <laughs> but you Facetimed me like seven <laughs> times. <laughs> and I was yeah. Like, so I had a uh, a boss one time, a female boss, and she was. Uh, working and I think actually her husband might have been even stay at home but the scenario was you know they would put on the nurses you know that the school medical you know both phone both parents and both phone numbers and she gets back to her desk one day to all these missed calls from the nurse at school you know about her child having a fever needing to be picked up and she calls back and she's like well did you call the you know my husband oh no She's like, because he is on the list and he actually is much closer and could have come and picked up right away. You know, and she was just so appalled. And I was like feeling at her. I'm like, why does mom always like, like, okay, maybe call mom first, but then right away call <laughs> dad right afterwards. I'm with you. It always bothered me when um, the men's restrooms didn't have changing tables. Oh, right. Yeah. When we had an infant. Yeah. So that's probably a whole different story for another day. Elena, back huh? to... Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> sorry, we digress. Oh, were we talking about murder? Oh, yeah. <laughs> murder. Um, okay. So, Smith and Hickok woke the rest of the family and bound them as they searched the home for the valuables, for other valuables. After searching the home, all they could come up with is $50, a pair of binoculars, and a transistor radio. The petty thieves turned cold-blooded murders in an instant in a fit of rage. So that's all they got. They went in there expecting a safe full of cash, according to this cellmate that one of them had. And I mean, these people are criminals, so you can't really like 
figure out their psyche necessarily, mm-hmm. but like you would think they would just leave them tied up and hightail it out of there. Right. I guess they were so angry they killed them. That, yeah. that just seems so illogical. Right. Yeah, totally. So let's talk about In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. It's a really great book if y'all haven't read it. I read it twice. That's what I hear. Fourth (laughs) grade and sixth grade. Yes. Have you read it as an adult? I haven't. Maybe that's your summer homework. (laughs) Yeah. Let's let's all three do it. No? Okay. No. Mm -mm. Okay. Uh, So In Cold Blood. Before the killers were captured, famed author Truman Capote had heard of the ordeal. Capote and his childhood friend and fellow acclaimed author Harper Lee traveled to Holcomb, Kansas, so that they could research and write about the murders. Oh, Harper Lee. She used mm-hmm. to kill a mockingbird. Yep. Yep. If we had had a girl, it was going to be Harper Aww. because of Harper Lee. That's Aww. the book that made my husband decide to become a lawyer. Oh, fun. Oh, that's yeah. great. I love it. I love it. So together they interviewed people in the town, the investigators, and even the murderers themselves as they sat on death row. It took Capote six years to write Ink Cold Blood, and in 1966, it was finally published. It was an instant hit, and today is the second best-selling true crime book in history, behind the 1974 book Helter Skelter, which is about the Manson family murders. Oh, you may have sold me on reading this book now. I told you. No, told I mean, it, it is supposed to be uh, amazing. Like, yeah. it's, it's It's kind of like one of those books that you haven't read, but you definitely have heard of. Did it right. become a movie? Yes. Yes. It was a movie. Okay. So let's talk about what happened to the home. In 1964, cattle rancher Bob Bird bought the home. He tragically committed suicide 20 years after owning the home, but he did not do this in the home. After his death, Leonard and Donna Mater bought it from the Bird's relatives in 1990. The Maters were longtime residents of Holcomb and were familiar with the murders. Upon their deaths, the home went up for auction, but having no bids, it remained with the Mater's estate and eventually passed on to relatives of the Mater's by a deed transfer. The home was... Oh, I was just going to say, so one of the things I was reading about was interesting is that that, um, despite all these people owning it, they basically have kept it exactly like it was, right? Right. Yeah. The footprint and the the floor plan, the footprint and the floor plan have remained untouched. Since the murders happened. Amazing. What was the other home we talked about? Somewhere in California where they were just using it for storage oh, and nobody had done anything Los to Feliz. it. That's right. Los Feliz. Yeah. yeah. Um, I couldn't find a lot of information beyond this about the home. There was a 2019 article online that suggested the home would be put on the market soon, but I couldn't find much else. I couldn't find out how much other people had purchased the home for or what really is going on with it now. So that's interesting. I would think in, you know, because it was on nine acres mm-hmm. um, in rural Kansas, mm-hmm. you know, I would think that even if you didn't want to live in the home, there would be plenty of room to like buy the land and build somewhere else or. I kind of felt like, and Melanie, you tell me if you read differently in, in some of the research that you did, that the people who lived in Holcomb were ashamed of what happened. They were very upset when In Cold Blood came out. Um, they felt like it painted the, the, um, their perpetrators as the victims because it kind of went into their background and they do actually have really sad family history, which is very unfortunate. No excuse for murder, obviously, but very, very sad upbringings for both of those men who committed those acts. But the family, uh, or excuse me, but the residents of this of this town, Holcomb, Kansas, seem they seem kind of ashamed of what happened, not, not embracing it like, like we saw in Villisca or changing it like we saw in the Ramsey situation. They just kind of left it as is and... Just kind of 
Well, Deal if you think it. about it, you know, I'm Googling Holcomb, mm-hmm. Kansas, because I was trying, you know, trying to picture it and kind of where it is today. And basically everything I found was about the in cold blood murders. And this was, you know, 60, 70 years ago. So I mean, that's where, that's why I can sympathize with mm-hmm. them. They're like, oh my God, you know, we're a family, you know, a town of good folk, you know, nice families. And this is what you know of me, um, you know. You know, but really, it, I mean, it's a small town. It's only 2,000 people. It's still primarily a farming community of ranchers and farmers growing wheat, corn, alfalfa. You know, there's only a couple of restaurants in town. It is nearby a, a little bit larger town of Garden City, mm-hmm. which is about seven miles west. And that has about 26,000 people. That's still really you know, the, small, This though. is a yeah. small town. So if you think about it, like— yeah, this might have been kind of the big the big house, quote unquote, but it is not, you know, it's not in a big community today. You know, I'm reading it that the house was pretty much left as original as we were talking about. Still has a couple fireplaces, bathroom on the main floor with the glass block enclosure for the bathtub and shower, kind of kind of that 1950 style, mm-hmm. if you think about it. Um, you know, but this article talks about really if the house is in good shape, and this was several years old. The house could reach between 150 to 200 by, you know, theorized by the local real estate market. Um, but they're saying that, you know, really who might buy it, it might actually end up being an out-of-town buyer intrigued by the history, um, you know, because the locals, especially those with the, the connections, you know, might remain, you know, hesitant and kind of think twice about it. Um so yeah, I mean it's kind of really sad, but kind of it, it kind of interesting at the mm-hmm. same time. Yeah, yeah. So buy, sell, list it, live there. What would you do? Um, I would definitely list it. I mean, especially considering it's on acreage, I think you could. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of different ways you could market that and and find good buyers for that. Um, I don't think I'd live there. No, I, no. I mean, it's in a small town, and that's probably not my speed. Um, but also. Like nothing's changed. It's still mm-hmm. it's still the exact same. And I would need some sort of like freshness to, yeah, to live there. Yeah, I think that's it. Is you know, um, there was some one quote in an article I read. I, I don't remember exactly verbatim, but it was kind of like you know these people are uh, practical pragmatists, and they were mm-hmm. like, well, why tear down a perfectly good yeah. house, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but now I, I don't. I mean, yeah. What about you, Atlanta? Definitely list it. I would not live there. Be, be, same reasons because not enough has changed. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was fascinating, and I feel like I'm about to take a little vacation. Maybe I'll put in cold blood on my vacation reading list. Yes, do it. Yeah, do I, it. I feel it also gives us a little bit of a glimmer into Elena's psyche <laughs> and what oh made her who she is today. <laughs> I mean. This is not a book I would have guessed that you were reading in fourth grade, yeah. but I, I I love you for it. Thanks. Yeah. yeah I mean, can you imagine your kids reading that now? No. You're such a protective mom. I You'd know. be so upset. Oh, yeah. You are so protective. I've barely let them listen to any of the podcasds. There's just a few that I've let them listen to because, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's just, we. I don't know. But yes, much different than, than well, 80s. Yeah, totally well, different. It talks about how you know our childhood shape us in ways that we expect and don't expect. Right. Yeah. But since we started talking about the podcast back in what December last year, August last year, 
I don't know. It was a while, while back. back. Um, I was like, oh, I have to do this one. So thank you for letting me do it. Yeah, no, this was great. I yeah. love it. Um, okay. So yeah. I guess we'll see y'all next week. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's feature Crime Estate, you could find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimestatepodcast.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a Crime Estate we should cover? Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.